Hi, welcome to Cinema Scene on WGWG.org. I'm Noel T. Manning II, hanging out talking movies, as we do every week right here on Gardner-Webb University Radio. Uh, very happy uh, to have a special guest today, uh, S. Craig Zoller, is a uh, great director. And uh, it may be a name that not everyone out there has heard of, but, uh, but trust me, you will. Uh, he directed his first film uh, in 2015. The film's called Bone Tomahawk. It's a Western horror film, uh, definitely a labor of love, and uh, S. Craig Zoller is going to be giving us some information and background on this film. One of the best films of 2015. Um, I, I was just completely blown away by it on a multiple levels. Uh, we'll be talking about that as well. But, uh, but man, you're an author. You're a musician. You've got a cinematography background. You're an all-around lover of film. You've written several Western stories. Man, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you very much for having me, and uh, you know, glad glad to be uh, you know glad to be on, and uh, you know, talk westerns and movies and, and anything else that comes up. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, this film you had uh, an amazing cast: uh, Kurt Russell, Patrick Wilson, uh, Matthew Fox. And let me just stop right there. Matthew Fox surprised me. It actually took me a little while watching the movie before I realized it was him. That was pretty cool. Uh, Richard Jenkins, uh, really unlike anything I've seen him in before. Uh, and he just, he really took it to another level for me. And David Arquette, so great cast. Uh, talk a little about this cast and how you were able to get these guys. Uh, the, the simple answer is the, the script got these okay. guys. Okay. And uh, everyone was badly paid on this movie. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Kurt Russell, Richard Jenkins, Patrick Wilson, Matthew Fox, these guys are getting some of the worst paydays of their career. <laughs> and certainly... Uh, and certainly the half trailers to match. Yeah, yeah. And it, essentially the, the process began, I, I wrote this script in at the end of 2011. Okay. I, I finished it right right as that year closed down. And then at the beginning of 2012, I took the piece out. And the first actor on board was Peter Sarsgaard, who was originally cast in the Arthur O'Dwyer role. Okay, okay. And he's known for being really critical. He's clearly uh, an intellectual guy, and he loved the script, and I had a meeting with him, which went really well, and he came on board. And uh, so that was a, a stamp of quality at, uh, at his agency, and his agent is Kurt Russell's agent, and we obviously okay. wanted to get the script to Kurt Russell to have him read for the Sheriff Hunt role. And once we had the stamp of quality, Kurt read, and he read quickly. It was maybe four or five days after we submitted it, that I was on the phone talking with him about the movie and, uh, and, and how I would go about it and letting him know my background as uh, a cinematographer and also someone who directed theater so that, uh, you know, he had some confidence that we would get on the set and I wouldn't just crumble or, right. you know, retreat to my, my writer's case. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then uh, Richard Jenkins came on shortly thereafter. And Richard and Kurt uh, stuck... Uh, the whole time, uh, there was one brief time when Richard was working on Olive Kittredge when he wasn't available, but uh, they stuck forever, and uh, and and that was you know, and that was also something else in terms of having uh, a movie star like Kurt Russell right. uh, doing his first Western since Tombstone. Uh, there was a lot of value to that, uh, particularly with uh, Patrick Wilson. Uh, who adores that movie and really wanted the opportunity to work with him and also liked the script. And so it all just kind of fell into place. Yeah. And Matthew Fox had been aware of some writing of mine, and he and I had some really good conversations. 
and uh, and a lot of conversations about Bruder and, and pretty detailed, that, you know, talking about his posture, his past. He was someone, Matthew Fox, who wanted me to write uh, a biography on, on his character, and it's something I offer to any you know, any, any actor or actress I'm, I'm working with. Wow, that's pretty and cool. And so he and I got uh, into a lot of really detailed conversations, and he, he did a lot of work, and, and it is very fortunate for us that he is extremely competent with horses because his horse was a nightmare. <laughs> uh, every, like, he gets on that thing, and, and she, is, he, she is spinning around, uh, you know, pinwheeling yeah. and bucking yeah. and... It was, we wanted to use a mare, really? uh, in particular, uh, Matthew Fox and I did, because that's how that, that horse character is written. So right. I see it's female, and there's, very, there's something very important to her being female. Right. But yeah. again, this is one of these situations like all four of these people could ride. Wow. And Matthew Fox and, and Kurt Russell in particular are excellent riders, but this is, you know, this is, this is really important. And... Uh, you know that that these people looked good up there and, and were comfortable, but also helped with our our very rushed production schedule right. that they were able to handle these these horses. Well, we had, you, you, a couple things you mentioned there. You, you mentioned that um, limited budget, uh, very short shoot. That what, like three weeks was the shoot time. Is that right? It, it was twenty one days. So okay. we, wow. we we it was more like four weeks. Okay. With one week, we dipped into the weekend. Got you. Wow, wow. That's, that's amazing because period pieces in general are pretty challenging, even with major budgets. But when you've got a limited budget and a limited time, uh, I can only imagine. You're talking about the horses. You're talking about locations, costuming. What, what are, how did you approach those challenges with that limited budget and the limited time frame, too? Yeah, I, I mean, we... We had a bunch of versions of this movie that almost happened. Okay. And I'd been in Utah more than a year prior to this version happening. I scouted locations, figure you know we're 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 settling on local crew, and that version was going, and then it collapsed. And then between the Utah version, which followed the New Mexico version, and the version that we made, which was largely in and around Los Angeles. There was a Romanian version, so we 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 just wow. kept pushing. Wow. And uh, Dallas Sonier, who is my manager uh, and friend, and also the uh, ma- you know the main producer on this movie, uh, he really willed it into existence. And we just kept pushing forward, and uh, and he put a lot on the line, including um, basically writing a check for half of the movie uh, because we were funded by him. And a bunch of foreign, uh, a, a bunch of foreign interests. Man. We had sold okay. it in a bunch of territories overseas, right. but none of the, not a single company in this country, uh, either thought we could get it done for even three times this budget, or were open to it being done the way I wrote it. Okay, because uh, certainly there were companies who looked at it and said, "Well, yeah, if you turn it into a ninety-minute movie and have it as a fast-moving piece." get rid of all of this stuff that's potentially offensive, put in a bunch of, you know, put in these kind of actors, hire, you know, the, these crew people that we've approved. And it was, it was a laundry list of things that they required, not a single one of which I would have approved. Gotcha, gotcha. So it, we, we got into a stalemate trying to find uh, local companies. As I said, there's not a, single, uh, not a single company in this country that put money into it. 
uh, it was Dallas Sonnier and then it was, you know, foreign interests. It kind of cobbling this uh, together uh, because people didn't believe it could be done. Okay. And, uh, and, and, and uh, many of the crew, to be honest, a lot of the crew didn't think it would be done. Like the week prior to shooting, I have random key crew people taking me aside, letting me know this movie would never happen. Oh, uh, and that oh. was too ambitious and wow. cut it down. And, and, and my, my feeling was, said, let's try. If we're failing, then I will start cutting it down. But it, we, we need to be at a point where the movie is not happening and collapsing for me to cut down the script. Because the reason I'm doing this, the reason we're all here is this script. This is what got the actors on board. And a lot of the crew people were very excited about this and took, um, uh, you know, minimum wage positions and uh, the worst paydays that, that they've ever right. received yeah. to, to work on this because they were excited. I mean, this is, this is uh, a, a borderline impossible amount of work for, uh, you know, the, the production designer, Freddie Waff, the quantity of stuff that guy's he's building a room, breaking it down and building a new one in the same day and, and Chantal Filson who did our costumes uh, and Hugo Villasenor who did the makeup, like this is a staggering amount of stuff when you're, especially if you're dealing with the troglodyte element, you're doing head to toe makeup on tons of big people right? and all period costumes. There's yeah. nothing where people can just sort of walk into the movie as is. Right. Right. And it, 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 it was a lot of work and, you know, costume was, literally like fitting people in the parking lot of the hotel where I was staying and we were, you know, you know, we're working on, on makeup stuff out of the garage of the, uh, the makeup artist. Man. Like wow. it, it, we, we did what needed to be done yeah. and everybody, uh, everybody was so excited about the piece, it being a Western and excited about the material uh, itself uh, that, that they, that they did the extra work. Yeah. And that's, you know, and that's how it happened. Yeah, well, you're talking about you know, the story, and I love the story. And um, it, it takes you. it takes some really interesting turns. And I, I love Westerns anyway. Um, but how different was the final cut uh, compared to your kind of original concept or even that first draft? Uh, this is the first draft. Really? You're looking at it. Wow. And, wow. Uh, so the director's the, cut. Wow. Yeah. It, it's... Uh, there wasn't. There was. There are three epilogues in this movie, and I don't want to say anything that's a, a spoiler. Okay. Uh, though, if we get into that territory, then then we'll we'll just give a warning. But there were three epilogues to the movie, and there was one that I'd been questioned uh, about long before we ever shot it through. After we had a cut, and one of the epilogues went away. It's it's a bonus feature that people can see, and some people let me know they wish the scene was in there, and some people. Not and there's there's a reason uh, I removed. It. I just didn't feel it was as strong as the okay. other the other epilogues. But so that scene, uh, which is the deleted scene that you can see, I think on the Blu-ray, but but definitely on iTunes. Um, that scene is was gone. There were a couple of other small moments that didn't quite play, but uh, the the scenes uh, and the dialogue it it's it's pretty accurate. Um, you're, you're looking at, uh, like page by page, scene by scene. Wow. This, this is the movie that they signed on to make. Uh, and, uh, it's pretty much my first draft. That's we great. did a little, there were a few revisions and an idea 
that came up in rehearsal uh, regarding Arthur's hurt leg and the scene when they're doctoring the hurt leg. Uh, again, I, I don't want to give it away, right, but right. that developed further from discussions that we had in the rehearsal room. Uh, and then a bunch of little ideas, in particular, Kurt is, uh, is very experienced and knowledgeable about the staging of uh, action scenes and violence. So there are a couple of little beats and extra moments and little alterations in, in some of those scenes uh, uh, that came from conversations with him uh, and suggestions from him that were, that were really sound. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I remember asking the editor, I said, how much, yeah. how much do you think the dialogue changed from the script? He said, this is 98% wow. of the script. Wow. And it, it might be a little less than that, maybe a 95, 96, because there are mechanical things yeah. that didn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like they're in a small room, someone's not going to say, where, you know, is somebody here? Right. They, he can clearly see that he's not. Right. But, but it, it's pretty accurate. Like wow. this was a, a lot of how this whole movie happened was there was a piece of material that everyone believed in and wanted to deliver. And there weren't a lot of like, well, maybe we should try all of this. So maybe my character should do all this stuff. It was... They, they believed in what they signed up to do. Wow. We're on the phone with S. Craig Zoller. He is the director and writer for Bone Tomahawk, one of the best films of uh, 2015, a Western horror film starring a great cast, including uh, Kurt Russell, Patrick Wilson, Matthew Fox, uh, Richard Jenkins, and David Arquette. And we appreciate him taking some time today to talk about, about this movie. Uh, you know, the, um, the attention to detail throughout um, the action, the stunt work, the makeup you mentioned earlier, um, the effects, all incredibly um, impressive. How were you able to kind of guarantee the success in that to happen? And you know, the CGI, was there any CGI with the effects and action sequences as well? Uh, the answer to, the, to your second question is the, is the same as, as the first. Okay. In that I didn't want to use CG. Okay. Uh, okay. My, my feeling is, there are sixty, seventy million dollar movies out there right. that have CG that I don't buy. Okay, um, and, and movies that have good CG, like say Fellowship of the Ring, they're shooting a bunch of arrows and it looks fake to me. Okay, I just watched. Yeah. Uh, I just saw The Revenant, which I think is terrible. Uh, but I watched this CG bear mauling, um, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio, and it, it never felt like anything. Felt like something that had climbed out of Avatar or Star Wars. Not really something of of the old west. Okay, and uh, so to be realistic, when movies that have thirty, forty, fifty, maybe even a hundred times the budget my movie has, have special effects that don't convince me, CG special effects that don't convince me, it didn't lead me to think, well, I'll be able to do it better than them. <laughs> right? They yeah. Have, okay. Yeah. Like that, just logically, it's yeah. not going to happen. That so all of the effects, all of the effects, other than like a couple of fixes in one or two, like you know, oh, we're painting out a distant car or things like that. But really, all of the effects you're seeing on screen all happened on set. And I, I'm, I, I sit near the camera and get as close to the action as possible. Okay. I don't, uh, I don't go to Video Village. To me, that's a kind of a remote way to to deal with actors and I want to look at their faces up, up close and I want to look at the violence up close and see if I buy it because seeing it on a monitor, uh, you know, oftentimes, you know, a black and white monitor, uh, doesn't, doesn't give me the amount of detail as if I am sitting as close as I possibly can get to the action on set. So 
So those arrows that are flying in this movie, yeah. people are flinging arrows that are attached to fishing wire. Wow. This is this is the this is technology circa 1920. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Uh, but but that's that's what we did, and because I wanted them to react to what was really there, and I wanted to see something on the set and say that worked or that didn't. It's the same as directing the performances. You know, someone gives me something great, I don't need to direct them. Right. Someone gives me something where it could be adjusted a little, and we have time to adjust it. Yeah. Here's the direction. Someone gives me something I don't like, perhaps try something totally different yeah. and give them a lot of direction. Gotcha. It's the same thing with violence. Like, did that look real? Okay. Did, did that arrow going, you know, into somebody's arm uh, convince me? And if it convinced me on the set, my feeling was it was going to convince me uh, in the finished film. So... All of that stuff is very is very old school, and and I need to and I need to give recognition to all the actors in this movie, with the exception of one shot uh, in in the entire movie. They all did all their own stunts, and wow. so wow. all those stills you see Kurt yeah. and and Matthew and uh, and Patrick and Richard taking throughout this movie, they're doing, Man. and it was again part of that attitude. Of, of people really, you know, like believing in the project. And a, a really good precedent was started right at the beginning when David Arquette um, had to do, you know, uh, well, what's a relatively painful stunt uh, in his scene in the saloon with, uh, with Kurt Russell. And he had to do it a, a couple of times, and it sort of set the standard very early on in the movie that the actors were going to go for it. Yeah, and yeah. it might have happened anyways, right. but it was the first time we were dealing with someone with a squib, with falling on the wood, with tumbling, with really doing, with really doing something uh, uh, you know, a little bit dangerous and, and, and more than a little bit uh, painful. And he did it, and he went for it. And it kind of set, uh, and it kind of set that tone that people were going to just go for it on this movie. And, uh, and they did, which is fortunate for me because I always wanted the camera in there and showing it. I didn't want to have to hide that we were using stunt doubles for all of this stuff. Right, yeah. I wanted to show the actors doing all this stuff. People are getting dragged across the ground. It's them. There's no way that that's not them. Wow. Like, you can see yeah. how close we are. It's them that that stuff is happening. Something's getting jammed into somebody's mouth. It's that guy. Yeah. And it, it's not... It, it, it's not somebody else. And when you see the actor, when you see high quality actors suffering through that stuff, uh, you know, it, it, it adds, it adds to it. Like we're not hiding something and it doesn't all of a sudden feel like something digital and false. Right. Well, you know, it sounds like a lot of the things you're talking about that, um, some directors may say would be limiting, especially if you're looking at a limiting budget. It, it kind of almost feels like you're saying it was freeing. Um, you didn't have the Michael Mann concept of doing, you know, 48 takes per, per scene because of the time. Was that, was that freeing for you to be able to just have, you know, just to kind of dive in and just move forward? I, by nature, I work pretty quickly. Okay. Uh, okay. And I know when I have what I want. So you get a scene like Chicory talking about reading a book in the bathtub. Yeah. And yeah, we had it on the first take. Wow. Wow. And uh, and and that scene that I mentioned with with David Arquette, yeah. again, you're looking at the first take. Man. Some of these things we did a second take. Yeah. Uh, in general, we probably did, let's say, three and a half takes of, wow. of each setup. So we, you know, it was three or four. Yeah. And up, but less coverage because yeah. we didn't cover the scene ten different ways. So there's there you're making a definite 
decisions there on the set, and a lot of my tendencies are not normal contemporary ones. The the quantity of close-ups in, in modern movies I find really distracting and uh, kind of and intrusive, and people are used to it. I've certainly been complimented and insulted for the lack of close-ups in this movie. Every close-up in this movie is an, is is uh, is on purpose and means something. And if you get used to seeing everything that way, I, I can understand that, you know those those choices. Uh, but for me, there's what's a little bit more natural is when you're talking to people, unless you're intimate with that person, you're usually seeing their hands move and, and people gesturing with their hands is part of how they express themselves. It's not just the face. Right. Well, so that was something where I knew I wanted it's, it's, it's slightly wider, but the camera is also much closer because of the lens choices. So I don't feel that there's a great distance. But at the same time, it's a different way to shoot it. Yeah. Uh, in terms of uh, the quantity of takes, that's the movie. This movie, I'd say, probably in the end, is eighty percent the movie I'd hope to make. Yeah. And I think that's a very high percentage for a directorial debut. Yeah. And a movie like this, that's this ambitious shot in twenty-one days. Right. Uh, but something I needed to move on from was being a perfectionist, and I can be that with my writing. Right. Like my stuff. Before people read it, I can sign off on it 100%. In this case, sometimes I did have the time to dig in and say, no, this isn't working for me. Let's try it this way. And then sometimes I knew this was going to be something I was cutting around because we have three more scenes to do today. And if if I continue to spend time shooting this one and picking on this one and digging in with this performer or this effect that's not going correctly... Uh, there's a chance we may lose an entire scene. So I, I would like more time. This is, if we shot this in 21 days, yeah, yeah. But I wouldn't have wanted to do like, a, you know, one of these shoots. I, I don't know how long um, Hateful Eight was, but I believe it was pretty long, yeah. maybe like six months or seven yeah, months or something yeah. like that. Like to me, there's a point where it's, it would start to die for me and feel right. a little over-rehearsed and, um, and some of the life would go out of it. But yeah, I think this movie, if we shot it in 30 days as opposed to 21, would be better. Gotcha. I don't know if we shot it in 40, if it would be better than 30. Okay. So okay. There, there is a point where it's not just more and more and more time. Like, I like to move, and we did get some of the stuff exactly the way I wanted it uh, in a very short amount of time. So some of that just has to do with hiring the right people, right. be it crew or cast. You mentioned the shot selections uh, for what we see on screen. Were you inspired stylistically by any westerns or horror, horror, you know, filmmakers for this, or was it just kind of things that you've uh, been a part of, been a part of you for your whole life? Uh, it's sort of a complicated answer. I, I can say with the horror element, and, and there are obviously a couple of very graphic scenes in this movie, though that's not most of the movie. I always harken back to the movie that bested me when I was a kid. Uh, I was 18, and I got some bootleg videotape of a movie from Hong Kong called Men Behind the Sun, and I had to shut it off yeah. repeatedly. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I don't know. Do you know this movie? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm, having, um, I'm having bad flashbacks right now. Yeah. So I, I, almost, I almost fainted when I watched that movie. I, I don't know if I almost fainted, but... I was getting tunnel vision, yeah. and I was nauseated like I was going like to vomit, and I shut it off, and then I watched 
the rest of it piecemeal with friends of mine to kind of, you know, not have this intense experience by myself. And I think it's a very good movie. Obviously, it's extremely difficult to watch. Right. And for those that don't know, this is a movie about how uh, the Japanese performed experiments on Chinese prisoners uh, in World War II. And uh, I, I think almost all of it is true documented stuff. And so that movie bested me. And that movie, when the violence happened, was very dry, right. uh, was very unflinching, did not give you a bunch of scary music, did not go in super tight for close-ups, but it shot it in a very natural way that was a complete part of the way all of the other stuff was shot right. in the movie. Right. And yeah. so that lack of forcing it down your throat, uh, like this is scary with scary music and extreme close-ups, I thought was the scariest approach. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of Dario Argento. I'm a big fan of Lucio Fulci. Okay. I enjoy those movies. Yeah. I enjoy that kind of style. I enjoy that, uh, the music and the approach there. Uh, but that's its own thing, and that is relishing the violence and relishing the horror as opposed to oh, my God, I really don't want this to happen to these people. Gotcha. Yeah. And uh, it's a very different point of view. So Men Behind the Sun, I always look at as, that was the movie that broke me as an 18-year-old and uh, really, really shook me up. And uh, that was an approach that I wanted to take with the violence. In terms of the overall direction, um, my favorite director is Sidney Lumet. And something that can be said about his movies uh, from, from the best to the, to, to the weakest, uh, is he's always about making the performances happen on the set. And some of his movies look fantastic. Mm-hmm. And some mm-hmm. of his have style, but it's understated. Something right. like Prince of the City or Dog Day Afternoon, and then something like Pawnbroker is a lot more stylized. And, but the performances happened on the set, and he captured them. And it can work a lot of different ways, but if the script is there and the performances are there, um, get it, and but don't get in the way of all of it. Right. And although I enjoy a lot of the the super stylized guys, and you know whether it's just, you know uh, Fulci or Argento or Sergio Leone and uh, and a lot of Scorsese stuff, but apparently a, a lot of Italian people I'm talking about. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, although I enjoy that, I think it's a different thing, and I'm coming at this movie as a writer who wants to best realize the material that he has written, as opposed to, I wrote this movie to propel my career as a director. Gotcha. Yeah. I'm directing this movie to best realize what I wrote. Right, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, and, and I actually feel that that, like, if you look at Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, yep. that that's what he did there. Yeah. And as good as the direction is on both, in both of those movies, the writing is even better. Right, right. And uh, so that, that's... That, I come from I come from that thought process. Uh, uh, Takashi uh, Kitano, Japanese director, I adore his stuff. Um, this is the guy who did Hanabi, also known as Fireworks, Kids Return, uh, Beyond Outrage, a bunch of fantastic movies. And he leaves the space there. The humor is dry. The music, when it comes in, is sort of a weird compliment to, to right. the movie, but not it's not leaning on it emotionally yeah. at all. Yeah. And I, I really enjoy what he does, uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of filmmakers, when we were talking about the style of the movie, yeah. it wasn't so much Western filmmakers that I was referring to. I was talking about Christoph, Kisla- Christoph Kislovsky, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. John Cassavetes, yeah, Larry Clark, a bunch of different 
uh, people who I, I, I feel kind of let the space sit in different ways. Yeah. And, and I, I'm a big fan of Anthony Mann, uh, Bud Bedecker, Sergio Leone, and, and Sam Peckinpah. Right. But right. I, I can't say that the styles of any of those guys um, were in, in any way what, what I was going for. Yeah. It's, yeah. Just, it's just a different thing. I, I wanted an earthier approach and an approach where you really didn't notice the style. One of the editors on the movie, Greg Darier, uh, actually referred to my style as an anti-style. Interesting. Because I yeah. tried to remove yeah. the director ego right. from that. And you'll notice a lot of the edits and, and all of the edits and scenes that play out the way I want them to um, are dictated by when the actors look at things. There is a, a central character for a scene when that person looks at something, then we're going over his shoulder. And so it's actually the actor's performance that's determining a lot of the edits. Right. Uh, right. More, more so than in most movies I've seen, though. No one really seems to notice it. I think it's pretty fluid. Yeah, it is. But it, it is. It, it's, it's the performance that's driving a lot of that right. and not really me saying, I want people to see this. I want people to see right. this. I want this cool shot in here. Well, that's where grabbing a, a great cast, I mean, that's what makes that happen. I mean, without the yep. cast, I don't know that that would have been as fluid, but, but it did feel very real. It felt, uh, it felt natural. And, and there's something about Kurt Russell. He's, when I see him on screen, almost in anything he does, it, it's almost this intangible thing, but there's just something about him and the way he delivers dialogue that's just fascinating to me. Yeah, he has really, he has really good line reading. And... He does. All, I, I really like his work in in this movie. I'd say probably, uh, excepting this movie, which obviously is directed, you know, to my taste and what I want. Right. His work in in Death Proof and Dark Blue are probably my uh, favorite other performances yeah. of his. Yeah. And he has a, a, a distinct manner of speaking. Yes. Yes. Uh, that a, a lot of the the more charismatic movie stars of yesterday and today have. Yeah. And and there's something where, you know, there are probably a dozen lines in this movie. After I hear him deliver it, it's hard for me to imagine anyone else doing it quite as well or quite as memorably. Oh, absolutely. And it does, it's not in a hammy way, not in a guy overselling the dialogue, no. but in a guy coming up with his unique, yeah. slightly musical take on a yeah. line yeah. That, that then he owns it in, in, in a way that, that um, you know, a, a lot of great movie stars own it. Yeah, there's something about that cadence that really is. Well, I yep. really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. We're on the phone with uh, S. Craig Zoller from the uh, film Bone Tomah- Tomahawk. He is the writer and director, and uh, he's given us way too much time, and we really appreciate it. But I do want to give you a chance to share any final thoughts, final comments uh, about this film or about anything about you that you want to make sure our listeners uh, get a chance to hear. Okay, cool. Thanks. Well, I, I, appreciate, um, I appreciate you spreading the word on it. Uh, this is a lot of how it's become a success at this point is the word of mouth. We, you know, the advertising budget for this movie is, is tiny compared to all the major releases, but we're, for, we're in a fortunate situation where um, the movie's made back its, its money multiple times over already, and the critical acclaim for it has been uh, really, really nice and, and actually to some extent surprising. I knew... Some people would like it, but I didn't. I wasn't expecting there to be the consensus of positive, you know, critical uh, reviews that there has been. So that's nice. And uh, again, people spreading the word and telling people about different movies. How are they going to hear about it? Movies are changing, and as you look 
Uh, you said you saw, you know, you saw Star Wars, you know, a bunch of times. Well, then you saw the preview for the 10 gigantic blockbuster movies uh, that I that I saw probably right, yeah, multiple yeah, times, yeah. and that's what Hollywood is making. They're making yeah. those giant movies, and some of them are good, and, and some of them are not. Uh, but that's what they're doing. So a movie like Bone Tomahawk really counts on people spreading the word and talking about it and going out of the way to promote it, such as you have done. So I want to thank you for that, and then I'll also recommend to people who like the movie uh, Race of the Broken Land is a western that I wrote. Uh, which is my favorite of my westerns, and it's a novel. Uh, and the producer of this movie, Dallas Sonnier, had asked if I could turn that into a movie. And I said, it's too elaborate and uh, to turn into uh, a movie and way, way too expensive to turn into a movie that we might possibly do. But uh, I can write another Rescue Mission Western, which is the inception of Bone Tomahawk. Gotcha. So if someone likes Bone Tomahawk, they'll probably like Race of the Broken Land. It's more elaborate. Uh, it's significantly nastier, uh, but I also get to dig in deeper right. uh, with, with some of the characters, and uh, I'm unfettered by budget and time constraints. Yeah. So that book, uh, Race of the Broken Land, is out there, and if someone particularly likes the dialogue of this movie, uh, I have a book called Mean Business on North Canton Street, which is a, uh, a crime book, and that has, I think, probably my strongest dialogue to date, so... I would recommend people checking out those books. And again, thank you very much for this opportunity to promote the movie. And uh, you know, best of luck. Yeah. Hey, happy and, New Year. Hey, hey, one quick more, one more thing. You're a musician as well, so uh, if you want, if people wanted to listen to your music, uh, go ahead and give a plug for that as well. Sure. Um, I uh, <laughs> well, I I didn't want to seem shameless. No, man, go for yeah, it. Yeah, go the, for the, it. The, ba- the band that the band that I am currently producing music uh, in is called Realm Builder, and actually, uh, my creative partner in that band, uh, J. H. Halbert, is Jeff Harriet, uh, with whom I co-wrote all of the music in Bone Tomahawk. Okay, the song at the end and all the score. So we're in a heavy metal band uh, called Realm Builder. One word. And, yeah, if you go on YouTube, you can listen to Blue Flame Cavalry, which is the title cut of our most recent album. And that'll give you a, a pretty good sense of what we do. Awesome. A uh, little, little bit uh, of a Blue Oyster Cult, Thin Lizzy throwback, but also some doom metal in the Candle Mass, Reverend Bazaar, uh, you know, kind of Black Sabbath world. So awesome. uh, uh, metal, metal for those. Uh, you know, who, who like it unpolished and gotcha. different. Awesome. Uh, but uh, but that's out there as well. So certainly yeah. check it out if you're interested in that kind of music. Hey, thanks so much for your time. S. Craig Zeller, our guest today on Cinema Scene right here on Gardner Web University Radio, WGWG.org. Check out Bone Tomahawk, one of the best films of 2015. And uh, it's not for the kiddies and maybe not for your grandmother, but uh, hey, it's, <laughs> it's definitely worth checking out. Until next time, I'm Noel Manning, and that's a wrap.